the past few weeks, you know that we've been reading from the book of Acts. And so would you open your Bibles to the book of Acts? We'll continue on our journey. It's been fun. It's been good. It's, hopefully it's not just been educational. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. I pray that it's been more than educational. It's been transformational, that something that's taken us from one place to the next place. And as we've uh, gone through the book of Acts, we've not just learned about the church. We've learned more about Jesus because he is the Lord of the church. You can't have church without Jesus. And it's interesting how you put a bunch of rookies in the faith. I would imagine most of you in the audience tonight have been born again longer than the leaders of the church when it first started. In fact, if you want to say born again, if they weren't born again until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, then really some of you who've been saved for, you know, a few weeks are beating them out, you know? They've been at most with Jesus for three years. The, the, that was the longest anybody had been with him besides his own brothers. And uh, his own brothers didn't believe in him when he walked the earth, so you really can't count them. So most of you have been in this longer than the leaders of the early church, and yet we often disqualify ourselves and we say, I'm not in a position to be able to, to uh, go out and do like they did or go out and be as bold as they were or even to have influence like they had influence because, you know, I'm just starting out. And uh, we come from a culture where uh, your knowledge is backed up by a degree or some institution saying, here's a stamp of approval. But the truth is, is that as we look in the scripture, there were those that had great education and there were those that didn't, and God used them all, and God used them as he saw fit, and God wants to use you. And so as we read through the book of Acts, I don't want you to read it like a nice piece of history. I want, to, I want you to see that the same Holy Spirit that is in the book of Acts, the same Jesus that's Lord of the church, the same God that works miracles is the same God that is today at work in the church today. If we will be part of it, and not just stand in the way and not run away. He wants to do great things in the church. I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about the church and the body of Christ. So let's look at Acts chapter 15. When we get to Acts chapter 15, it's not the most exciting of chapters. i got to be honest with you. You know, we just left Acts chapter 14 where a man had been lame since birth. And in the middle of a message, the apostle Paul stops preaching and uh, tells the man to get up. And he's healed. And then the crowd in that city of Lystra thinks that they're gods and start trying to offer sacrifices to them, starts trying to uh, treat them as if they're gods. And they rip their clothes and they say, no, we're not gods. We're just men like you. It was Jesus that did this. It was the, the one God, the creator of all the universe that did this. And uh, in the same, same little community, that crowd turns and tries to kill them later on. And so that's coming out of a really exciting chapter. We're moving into Acts chapter 15, which is all about a council that they had. So, you know, when you hear the words, let's talk about the council of Jerusalem. I, I don't see anybody getting up and wanting to take a lap around the church because you're so excited about it or dance in the aisles. But I think there's something that could be exciting in this, and I think there's something we can learn from it. And so in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, let's start reading there. And uh, we're going to find out that when God begins to move in the church, it's our responsibility to still see him as Lord. He is the Lord. I've said that a few times already tonight. He is the Lord of the church. And so through the book of Acts, we've seen some, some rapid 
and dramatic changes that Jesus has brought about, and some have gotten on board and some have resisted it. One of the major things that happened in the book of Acts, I know I said we'd read verse 1 and we still will. One of the major things that happened in the book of Acts, as you know, was the gospel being opened up to the Gentiles. And we might not think that's a big deal because I believe pretty much everybody here tonight is a Gentile. And we've always heard the gospel presented that way. Yes, we know that Jesus is the Messiah, right? We know that. But really, if you were to think back as to how you were led to Christ, most of you were led, uh, maybe reading from the book of Romans, you were led understanding that Jesus paid the punishment, paid the penalty for your sins, bore your sins, rose again. We were taught that. That's how we were born again. And so we understand the gospel in a certain light. And uh, you have to understand that most of the Jews, as they were born again, they, they, the message of the cross was what had the power of God to get them saved. It was the message of the cross and the resurrection. But the context in which it was presented in was that Jesus was their Messiah that they were waiting for for so long. And so they, they, they looked back, and you know, you see as Peter preaches, as Stephen gives his sermon, they go back and they show them in the scriptures and the law and the prophets how, how God's been talking about a Messiah for centuries. And you've been waiting for the Messiah for centuries, and he's come, and oops, you crucified him. But don't worry, he's offering forgiveness of sins. He's offering that you could come to him and be reunited with him and be born again. Now, all that's good. But you understand, the first time they meet a Greek that has no concept who the Messiah is, has no reference point for the law and the prophets, how in the world do you share the gospel with them? Now, you guys would do just fine, because that's how you were led to the Lord. But to this young church, they're starting out as a bunch of new believers, and they understand Jesus in a very Jewish sense. And so for them to talk to non-Jews, it was intimidating, first of all, Back home, they weren't even allowed to go into a non-Jew's house, to a Gentile's house. They weren't allowed to eat with them. They weren't allowed to spend a lot of time with them. And so it's already shaking their foundations to say, you're going to be part of the same church, and you're going to eat together, and you're going to pray together, and you're going to go over to each other's houses. And when God appeared to Peter, when God sent an angel to Peter and, and gave Peter a vision of all these unclean animals coming down from heaven that Peter, as a good Jew, was never allowed to touch, let alone eat. God gave him this vision three times. It took three times to get it through Peter's skull that whatever, as Jesus said to him, whatever I've cleansed, you're not allowed to call unclean. It's interesting that three times he sees that vision and three men, right after that last vision, right as the vision's closing up, three men, three dirty, stinking Gentiles like you and me, show up at his door, knocking at his door. And he goes over to Cornelius' house. And as he walks into Cornelius' house, Cornelius being an Italian uh, uh, centurion, he's part of the Roman army, part of the Italian cohort. And he's a good man and he loves God, but he's not Jewish. And as Peter goes into his house, which he was not allowed to do, he goes into his house and he begins to preach the gospel. And before he's done, these men start, Cornelius and all his household start speaking in other tongues. And Peter says to his buddies, well, I guess that settles it then. If they can receive the Spirit, who are we to say they can't be baptized? Who, do, who are we to say they can't be part of the church? And for those of you that were there with us when we read through Acts chapter 11, you'll remember Peter comes back to the apostles back in Jerusalem, and there were some people that took issue with him because he went into the house of a Gentile. And do you remember what he said? 
He was very calm. He was very put together. But he said, listen, this is what happened. This is the vision I saw. And then he went back through the scripture saying, don't you see, God has told us throughout the Old Testament. Well, they didn't call it the Old Testament then. But throughout the scriptures, and Jesus told us that we would go into all nations, that he would be the light to all these nations, that he was opening this up to the Gentiles. And the Bible says this, and this is an incredibly important phrase that you need to remember. It says, when they heard this, they quieted down. And they glorified God. That's important. Now, now you might say, why is it important that I quiet down? It's important that you quiet down when you're resisting the very thing God's doing. Which is human nature when it's something new. Right? When God does something new, it makes us all uncomfortable. And the longer you've been a believer, sometimes it's even harder for you to accept these things. And so what happened was that that the apostles heard this, and rather than argue with Peter, it says they quieted down because they saw and they recognized this is of God. They quieted down, and then they weren't quiet anymore. They began to glorify God. See, they didn't just stop opposing what God was doing. They got on board. And they began to glorify God for what he was doing, that he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. We ended Acts chapter 14 with that same phrase. Because the apostle Paul and Barnabas have gone on the first missionary journey. And this was the first journey that was exclusively to reach Gentiles. Now, they, they, they reached a lot of Jews, too. They preached in the synagogues. They, they proclaimed it to their Jewish brethren. But they also saw God moving amongst the Gentiles like they never thought could happen. And it says that when Paul and Barnabas came back to Antioch, the church where it all began for them, where they were sent out on their first missionary journey, they were praising God and they were telling everybody how God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This has riled some people up. So now, as promised, we're going to read verse 1. In Acts 15, verse 1, here's what happens. So men came down from Judea, Now, down seems like an odd thing, because if you know anything about Middle Eastern geography, you know Antioch is in Syria, and it's north of Judea. But when they often say down, (laughs) you know, especially when you think of Jerusalem as the center of the universe, we all have our own little center of the universe. Any of you are from Ontario, you know what that feels like. You think you're the center of Canada, and and somebody, (laughs) I love you, I love you all. You know, last time I was in Ontario, I realized I wasn't Canadian enough. I, I born and raised, born in Saskatchewan, raised in Alberta, and yet I realized these, all those Canadian stereotypes that people always talk about, it's these guys. Yeah. It's these guys. I would always say to my American friends, we don't say that. They do. They say that. That oot and a boot, that's them. Everybody's drinking Tim Horton's got a Blackberry. They're Canadian through and through, so good for them. But anyways, you can imagine, not only is Jerusalem kind of the center of the universe for these people, but Jerusalem is actually up, up elevation-wise, it's up. And so pretty much anywhere you go down to, you go down to Samaria, you go down here, come down from Jerusalem, go these places. And so even though it's north, we can accept when they say they came down from Judea. I'm imagining that's what every good Jew thought. Every time I leave Jerusalem, I'm going down somewhere. And they go down to Antioch, and it says this, They came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Does that sound right to you? No, some of you are getting very nervous now. (laughs) 
when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. So they're going to settle it together. They're going to find an agreement. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. It's about a 250-mile journey from Antioch to Jerusalem. It might have taken them about a month to get there, especially if they're taking their time, speaking in different villages. So, so some time has passed, and they're taking advantage of this time. And it says, as they get there, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, it's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Now, isn't it funny that even when the Pharisees got saved, they did things like this? You know, these are good Pharisees. These are the ones that believed in Jesus. Now, Paul was a Pharisee, but you know what? He never called himself a Pharisee after he got born again. Now, there's nothing wrong with calling himself a Pharisee, but the issue was that they identified more with their religious upbringing than identifying with themselves and with others as believers in Jesus Christ. You see, they're still part of a sect. They're still kind of keeping amongst themselves, and it's showing. And they say, well, you know what? You have to teach them to observe the law of Moses. They, because if Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and Jesus is the Messiah, then you got to be Jewish. You know, this is the only way that it works. And so, in verse 6, it says, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. Now hear this. Hear how Peter says this. In the early days, he didn't say, I made a choice. He didn't say, we came together and decided on something. He says, God made a choice. Now, that's a real important thing. Are we doing what we're doing because we decided it was a good idea? Are we doing what we're doing because it's what God said to do? And so here Peter says, in the early days, you remember, God made a choice. And he made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. So you couldn't argue with that, could you? You couldn't argue with the fact that they received the Holy Spirit. You see, you could argue whether or not they could be believers, whether they could not join the church. But when God gave them the Holy Spirit, and it was evidenced to all by their speaking in other tongues, that was the evidence for everybody. When they began to speak in other tongues, Peter looked at his friends, like I said earlier, and he said, God made his choice here. Who are we? To say they can't be part of us. God already chose them. Now, remember, Peter had a head start. He had a vision three times to hammer this into his skull. But he finally believed it. If God cleans somebody, if God calls something clean, I'm not allowed to argue with that. This is important, especially since that's one thing for Peter to say it because he was there. He saw the vision. He was there when God did this and gave the Holy Spirit to those men at Cornelius' house. He was there when the angels showed up. He was there for all of that. But you can imagine for those that weren't there, having to take his word for it, having to take a step of faith out of what they're comfortable with 
and begin to embrace that God is doing something they're not used to. God is used to doing something they don't quite understand yet. God is doing something that's going to take them once again. And this is the Pharisees' problem all the time. When Jesus began to preach, Jesus ate with sinners. He hung around with poor people. The Pharisees who were the top of the ladder suddenly weren't the top when Jesus was around. That's tough. It's tough not to be the top anymore. Jesus gets on to him and says, you like when people call you father. You like when people give you respect. And they, give you, they, let, they let you cut to the front of the line. They give you all these special honors. You like that, don't you? He said, but if you accept that from them, you're not going to get a reward for it in heaven. So they, they get born again. They've maybe been humbled a little bit. But they still think they're the top of the Christian ladder because we're educated. We've got, we know the scriptures. We know the law. We're, we've been zealous. Oh, you, 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 little, you little poor little people, you just started believing. You left your sinful lifestyle like three months ago. Good for you. But we've been serving God for all these years. And aren't you blessed that we came along and believed in Jesus? Aren't you blessed that we joined your group? And all of a sudden, that's being challenged too. Because we're letting Gentiles into the club. How many of you have heard of Newark, New Jersey? Anybody here? You've heard of it. You, you don't necessarily want to visit. <laughs> but, it, you know, Newark, New Jersey is where the New Jersey Devils play. It's where the New Jersey Nets used to play. You're probably wondering where I'm going with this. But turns out my ancestors and my wife's ancestors founded that city together. Which is really crazy. Back in the 1600s. There's a, there was, there's a covenant of 40 different men that signed a covenant together founding the city of New, Newark, New Jersey. And my ancestors' name's on it. And I found out Tia's ancestors are on there too. And they, they came from the same colony, the New Haven colony. And I, I went back and I, I found the old colony records and, and found out where they sat in church. My wife's relative sat seven rows back in the middle. My relative sat eight rows back on the right side. Isn't that amazing? And then centuries later, their grandkids get together. That's all neat. But wait until you hear why they started Newark, New Jersey. They started Newark, New Jersey because the New Haven colony was letting people that weren't part of the Congregationalist Church start voting on town matters. So they considered that colony was way too liberal, and they moved, and they started their own own town. Listen, it wasn't they were letting non-Christians vote. They were letting non-members of their church vote. You can't be part of our town. They left. They had to start a new town because you're letting these guys vote, and they don't go to our church. They go to the Baptist church. (laughs) How terrible is that? Now, you think how small-minded that seems now, don't you? To them, it was life and death. My my wife's... uh, you know, ancestor goes way back is a woman named Ann Hutchinson, and she was kicked out of Massachusetts for being a woman that dared to preach and for preaching grace uh, when they were basically at that point in the Massachusetts colony preaching just out of the Old Testament. And so they didn't just say, we would rather you not do this. They kicked her out of Massachusetts. <laughs> She started, she co-founded Rhode Island because she got kicked out of Massachusetts. Now, this is all recent history, but these boys are about to do the same thing. While some of them are glorifying God, 
that God has brought in new people to the fold, that the wild branch has been grafted into the olive branch, that God has taken these men and women who were idol worshipers and, and, and idolater of fornicators, all of this, God brought them into the family of God. They've been saved. They received the Holy Spirit. God's using them. There's churches starting everywhere. Instead of rejoicing in that, they're offended because they're no longer at the top of the list. They're offended because all of a sudden it's not as pure anymore. So you see what they're doing. The Pharisees are telling them to do what you would have had to do before Jesus came along. If you were a Gentile and you wanted to associate with Jewish people and you wanted to be um, a convert to Judaism, you had to be circumcised. doesn't matter how old you are. I mean, as you, if you're a man, doesn't matter how old you are, you have to be circumcised. So, you know. Not a lot of fakers in the crowd. You had to really want it. You had to be circumcised. You had to go through all these other things. You had to eat like they ate. You had to observe the law of Moses. When Jesus comes, when he dies, he's rose again, sends his Holy Spirit. The church opens up to people that aren't necessarily Jewish. And he opens up to people that don't observe ritual law. And in fact, says to Peter, by that vision, not only are people clean now that I call clean, not only the Gentiles clean in my sight, but also some of this food you couldn't eat before you can eat now. You see, this is one of the issues with them eating with one another is that they didn't eat the same things. There were a lot of things. If you've ever been on an airplane and noticed that you have an option, well, it's back when they used to serve you food. It's back when they treated you like a human. <laughs> you used to be able to order a kosher meal. And it was, it was very specifically prepared. I mean, the meats and the cheese, they don't touch. There's things like that, right? And so there's a certain way that you eat, and there's certain things that you eat. And these Gentiles, these dirty, rotten, stinking Gentiles, they'll eat anything. And they'll eat it improperly. And they don't say the right things, and they don't wash their hands and all of this. And so these people wouldn't even eat with them. And the Pharisees said, these are believing Pharisees, they said... They have to go through the same process. They have to become Jewish in order to become Christian. And here's the response. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. We'll read this again. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up, verse 7, and said, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and they would believe. And God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. So there was no difference. There was no distinction. He did it in the same way. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now that is a, that is a dramatic, church-shaking statement that he said, God made no distinction. Do you realize the impact of his words? If God didn't make a distinction between them and us, then how dare you make a distinction between them and us? And then he says, now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon, placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe, thank God, that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And all the people kept silent as they were listening to Barnabas and Paul, as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they had stopped speaking, James answered and said, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon 
has related how God first concerned himself about taking among you from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Tonight, we're not going to spend a lot of time, but there's a lot you can dig into when he talks about rebuilding the tabernacle of David. The tabernacle of David was unlike any other temple or tabernacle that they knew because in the tabernacle of David, everyone could come and worship the Lord together. And God doesn't say, I'm rebuilding the temple of Solomon. He didn't say, I'm rebuilding the tabernacle of Moses. He doesn't say, someday I'm going to rebuild this. He says, I am going to rebuild the tabernacle of David, a place where people seek me, a place where all people can come and seek my face and know my presence. And he says, this is the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. So you see that Peter, Paul, and Barnabas are telling them, look, this is what the Lord has done. And James is bringing up, this is what the Lord has said. Now, this is important, guys, because, you know, here I am telling you when God does something, sometimes it'll rub you the wrong way, sometimes it'll seem weird, but you need to accept what God is doing and jump on board. But listen, there's going to be a lot of people that come and tell you God is doing something, and it's not God. You should not be so gullible that everything that comes along, you jump on board. Because, because you said, well, I don't want to oppose God. Listen, you also don't want to be on the train to Crazyville, you know, Flakeland. That exists. And you don't want to be that way either. So listen, this is how they presented. They presented the signs and the wonders that God did, but they also presented the fact that God said through the Scripture this was going to happen. Everything that God does will be backed up. He will confirm by signs and wonders, and he will confirm by his word. He will confirm by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he will confirm by the power of the word. These things will always agree. So if somebody says to you, this is what God's doing, come on, jump on board, and it totally contradicts what the Scripture says, don't jump on board. If they got a crazy theory where, you know, if I take this Scripture and I combine it with this Scripture, and then we read them backwards, it says this. And the Spirit of God's not backing that up at all. Don't jump on board. You can find all sorts of crazy little theories on YouTube. You can find a group, you can find a group somewhere that thinks they have found the secret way to heaven through, through a, a, a tulip field. And, and if you smoke the right ganja, you'll get there too. And it's not of God. And you need to be able to discern between what's of God and what's not. But here's the point. You don't discern by what makes you comfortable or uncomfortable. And a lot of people will go with what they've known and go with what they're comfortable with and call that discernment. You know, I had a friend that I used to work with. And, and this guy was a you know, great guy. He loved the Lord. But he told me, he said, you know, I found out I had the gift of discernment. I said, how do you, how do you know? And All right. Good. Now, I didn't want to tell him. Now, I know the scripture said there are gifts of discernment, certainly. As believers, we all have the Holy Spirit, which is a discerning spirit. But there are certain gifts of discernment, which you know which spirit that is, and you're able to deal with it. So, but anyways, he says, I know I have the gift of discernment. I said, well, tell me about it. He said, well, I never heard anybody prophesy. I said, oh, really? He said, no, we just don't do that. But I went with my Pentecostal friends, and a lady stood up and prophesied. 
And I said, that's not God. That's how I knew I had the gift of discernment. I said, bro, that's cool and all, and maybe you're right. But have you ever heard somebody prophesy and you said, that's from God? He said, no. I said, well, then how do you know you have the gift of discernment? And you just don't have the gift of criticism. You know, I mean, I, if you don't know what the real $100 bill is, don't tell me that you, you can figure out what the fakes look like. You've got to know the real in order to know the fake. And so, you know, what, now he could have been right. That lady could have been out to lunch. I don't know. I wasn't there. But really, sometimes we judge things based on, I, I deal, wasn't raised this way, or this isn't the way my church did it. Or just, I'm, I'm just not comfortable. Now, you have to understand, there's a spirit inside of you. And many of you know that feeling when your spirit goes, this isn't right. And it's different than your soul saying, I'm uncomfortable. Your flesh saying, I'm uncomfortable. How many of you felt a little uncomfortable the first time you ever came to church? Yeah, quite a few. Not everybody, but quite a few. I mean, come on. The Bible says this message is foolishness to them that believe not. So the first time you come into a church, maybe, you, maybe the Lord led you there and you were so ready that everything seemed right. Some of you were freaked out. You know, the Bible says that the church in Acts chapter 2 was constantly sensing, feeling a sense of awe. And to me, constantly feeling a sense of awe is kind of just a positive way of saying we were all freaked out, but in a good way. God was doing something we didn't understand. We had our mouths open pretty much the whole time. How would you feel if you were with Jesus and he, you see a blind man and you know you've seen him deal with blind people before and he lays his hands on them or he speaks to them and tells their eyes to be open. But this time he spits in the dirt and he scoops some of it up and he smears it in his eye. How many of you would go, yep, pretty much what I expected. That's what I would have done. Yeah, seems right. Don't you think if you're one of the disciples, you'd be like, oh, little weird. Especially when he says, how is it looking? And the guy goes, I see men as trees. You'd be like, see, you know, barely worked, you know. Then God's, Jesus sends a blind man to go find a pool to wash himself out in. Just go find it. But I'm blind. Go find a pool. Don't you think you might have been a little creeped out by that? A little, a little bit weird. Don't you think you might have thought Jesus was a little bit uh, missing something? Maybe You knew he was the son of God. You knew he was the Lord. But maybe you, you thought he could have done things differently when he starts talking about, you all should drink my blood and eat my flesh, and the whole church leaves except for you guys. <laughs> you and 11 guys are left. Jesus, did you have to say it that way? Couldn't you have explained? I mean, like little crackers and grape juice. Like, you know, couldn't you have said that? <laughs> Did you have to leave him thinking you're talking about vampirism and cannibalism? So I'm not saying discernment. You got to understand discernment. There's a difference between your spirit going, this is right or this is wrong. And your flesh or your soul saying, this is right or this is wrong. And it takes some maturity to distinguish between the two. To know, is this my spirit or is this just me? Now, we all know that tension because you felt that when you go out and you feel something pulling you to go talk to somebody. That's the question we often ask, right? Is this me or is this God? Well, that happens in a church service too. Or it happens when someone says something you've never heard. Now, sometimes your spirit just leaps up within you. But other times it confronts what you've believed. 
And you have to know, is this God? Am I uncomfortable because my spirit says this is wrong? Or am I uncomfortable because I'm just not used to this? And here's what the apostles did. Here's, here's how they presented it. They didn't just talk about their experiences because experiences can be deceiving. But they talked about their experiences lining up with the word of God. And these two witnesses combined together and we believe it's God. And here's what happens. Let's finish this up here. James says, Therefore it's my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols. In other words, meat offered to idols, because the Gentiles would buy meat at the market, but the Jews wouldn't. Because the meat that you bought at the market could have, most likely in many cases, could have been offered to um, idols, could have been offered to gods or goddesses. And so you never knew if the meat you were eating was tainted. Paul addresses this later in one of his letters, and he says, All things are sanctified by the word and with prayer. But if your brother has a problem with this, don't eat that meat in front of him. Just eat vegetables with him. It's because it's better to just not be a stumbling block to him than to get the food that you want. So he says, don't, don't partake in things offered to idols. He's talking about what you're eating. He says, and from fornication, from what is strangled and from blood. Now, three out of four of those things are ritual things that Jesus didn't say anything about. Three out of four of those things are not found in the New Testament other than right here. Other than what I mentioned earlier about Paul referencing it and saying, it's fine. If you pray over it, it's blessed. But if your brother has a problem with it, don't eat it. So why did James and the rest of the apostles think that this was important? I'll tell you why. Because it was a matter of God bringing two groups together for the first time. And so if the Jews were still going to eat this way, and they weren't going to eat this stuff, the stuff strangled or with blood, they weren't going to eat meat that they thought might have been offered to idols, then he's saying, don't eat it either so that we can all be one, and we can eat together, and we can be part of a church together. Because if God showed no distinction between us, obviously we're supposed to be one. And this comes out in Colossians chapter 3. You know, when we really began to see God move in Loon Lake, one of the first things that we began to see as the Holy Spirit stirred the hearts of the people toward him, and Levi can testify to this, and many of you can testify to this, is that one thing that I love to see is that there was a time where, where the native people from the reserve and the white people from the town, they'd come to church, they'd raise their hands at the same time, they'd sing the same songs. But when it came time to a Thanksgiving meal or a Christmas meal, everybody was friends. You know, they're friendly, I should say. But nobody sat together. You know what I'm talking about? There was a table. The native people are sitting here. There's a table. White people are sitting here. But as you saw people begin to draw closer to God, and we'd go over to each other's houses and do Bible studies at different houses and eat together and pray together, you saw those people start hanging out outside of church, whether you're from the town or the reserve. You, maybe they're going hunting together. Maybe they're going, you know, uh, Brother Waugh started a garden, and, and they're gardening together. You know, things like that. And what we're seeing was in Colossians 3, it says this, and this became a touchstone for me. Colossians 3 says that we are being renewed, and it's a renewal according to the image of the one that created us. So we are being renewed to look more like him. Every day we look more like him. And it says in this renewal, there is no distinction between Jew 
or Greek. There is no distinction between barbarian and Scythian. And there is no distinction between a slave or a free man. Now, in that society, every single one of those things coming together would have been just crazy. Jews didn't eat with Greeks. You certainly didn't eat with barbarians. Oh, my goodness. Scythians, are you kidding me? They're disgusting. And barbarian, I'm sorry, freemen and slaves are different places in society. And to say you're one in Christ, you have to, you, you eat together, you pray together. That slave might be your pastor. <laughs> are you going to be okay with that? And he ends it with, by saying this, but Christ is all and he is in all. That's a powerful thought. And here's where we're going to wrap this up. Because this is the thing that God is doing in this story, but he's still doing it today. You have a choice. Do I identify with my group more than I identify with Jesus? Do I identify with the denomination more than I identify with the church of Jesus? Do I call myself a follower of Jesus? In reality, am I a follower of this group of people? See, the Pharisees kept their name. They kept their name. They still kept their own little distinction. And what God was doing was breaking down the walls by his spirit, removing the distinction, bringing the groups together. Because the Bible says in Colossians, when he's talking about this division, he says that Jesus Christ nailed the enmity of the two groups. He put it on himself on the cross, and he has destroyed the dividing wall. And this is what Jesus is doing. Now, you remember... John the Baptist had some disciples. You know, in the New Testament, you never see any of the apostles say, these are my disciples. They say, these are, they just say they're disciples because they're disciples of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said, go and make disciples. He didn't say, go and make disciples of you, disciples of Jesus. You'll notice that John the Baptist had disciples and they show up a couple times in the New Testament. And a few of them, when John the Baptist baptized Jesus and the Holy Spirit came on Jesus, a few of them were standing with John after that happened. And Jesus walks by, and John's already recognized that this is the one. Jesus walks by, and John yells, just, just in his own uncultured way that he always does. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the Bible tells us that a bunch of his disciples just left and followed Jesus. And you know what? That was the right thing to do. Because the ones that stuck with John, they're the ones that come later and go, Jesus, are you the one? Are we supposed to wait for another one? <laughs> Jesus says, tell John, you've seen the lame walk, you've seen the blind open. I mean, you know, you've seen enough here, buddy. You've seen the signs. I'm the one. You see, those disciples had become disillusioned because they had, been, they had stayed with John a little too long. They were meant to be followers of Jesus. John had his time, and he recognized that. He said, he must increase, I must decrease. And there is something that happens to all of us when we decide we're going to follow Jesus. We and our background and our culture and our history and our group and our family, we all decrease so that he might increase. 
so that he might be the Lord of all, that he might be the center of everything. But you have to make a choice because there will be times where you feel pulled back into your little groups. You feel pulled back into the safety of numbers where you say, I identify with these people. I'm of this person. I'm this person. Like we talked about on Sunday in 1 Corinthians 1 and 1 Corinthians 3, how they were identifying with people more than they are identifying with Jesus. And how Jesus continually is showing them, I'm breaking down the walls and you're going to be a little uncomfortable with it. But the smartest thing we can do is what they did in Acts chapter 11. Quiet down. If you're arguing, if you're fighting it, if you have a problem with it, quiet down and glorify God. That's the smartest thing you can do. Quiet down and glorify God. And we need to be able to be spiritually discerning in this day and age. For there will be many false teachers. There will be false prophets. There will even be, the Bible says, lying signs and wonders. You need to be more discerning than you've ever been. For the thief is coming to steal, to kill, and destroy. In fact, he already is. But Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. The Bible says there are many antichrists out there. In fact, they came out from you, but they were never of you. In this day and age, there are more lies than you can shake a stick at, if I borrow a phrase from my southern relatives. But as much as there's lies, there's a greater truth. And as dark as it gets, there's a light that's even greater. And so even though there's lying signs, there's false teachers, there's false prophets, there's also, thank God, a genuine move of God. And revival will shake us all. And it will shake us out of what we're comfortable with. And you need to know the difference between discerning something that you're just uncomfortable with so you don't want it and discerning something that truly is, is from God and isn't from God. You need to know the difference between your flesh and your spirit, between your soul and your spirit. And you know what the Bible says? The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's able to divide between joint and marrow. It's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's able to divide between soul and spirit. So thank God the word of God will show you what's your soul and it'll show you what your spirit is. It'll show you what's all in your head and it'll show you what's truly of him. In this day and age, we may need to be ready to not be led around by every wind and wave of doctrine. But we also have to be ready to jump on board when God says go. And it might make us uncomfortable. And it might make us nervous. And it might make us a little bit uh, humbled because we'd missed it before. But if we will embrace what God is doing and jump fully on board and it lines up with the word of God and it lines up with the spirit of God, I say jump on board and just see what God does. Amen? Let's not be those idiots that stand against God because you've got a better idea. Let's be the ones that say, God, if you're doing it, I don't understand it, but I know it's you and I'm on board. Let's stand up together. Thank you, Lord. You are doing a a new thing in our generation. And it may seem new, but it's the same thing you've been doing for centuries, which is your spirit renewing, reviving, sending us out as your ambassadors, as your disciples to reach those that are lost, to shine light in dark places, to bring hope to hopeless places, to bring love where there is hate. Lord, we know that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Father, 
I'm aware that the traditions of men nullify the word of God. The traditions of men often hinder the work that you're trying to do. Lord, we're asking you right now, and our hearts are open to you. And I believe I stand in agreement with numerous brothers and sisters tonight when we say we want you. And we want everything that you've got. And we want all that you are. And Lord, we do not want to miss what you're doing because it makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to miss what you're saying because it confronts our paradigms and our worldview. Lord, we want to be on board with what you're doing. So I'm asking you today, would you open our eyes that we would see clearly? Open our ears that we could hear your voice and open up our hearts that we would understand your word. Lord, that we would not seek our own way, but we would seek your way. Father, forgive us for the times that we formed factions and divisions, that we've protected ourselves by hanging out just with people that thought like us. But Lord, I'm asking that you would unite your church, not unity for the sake of getting along or just getting along and not fighting, but true unity of the spirit where we are submitted to you as the head of the church, where we are in agreement, where we're of one mind and one heart and one spirit, that we are striving together for the work of the gospel. Lord, I believe that even in the next couple of years, you're going to radically open up new sections of society, new groups that have been closed off. You are opening doors that no man can shut. And Lord, we want to be ready when you open those doors. Send us through those doors to preach your gospel. You're bringing people in by, by the, the crowd, the multitude, the droves. We want to be part of it. We don't want to be left behind in the dust because we're too stubborn. No, 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 we want to be on board. Send us through those doors. May we be discerning by your spirit. May we know the voice of the shepherd so well that a stranger's voice we won't follow because we don't know the voice of the strangers. But we will hear your voice and your voice will follow. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. I love you very much. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Go out and do the work of the ministry. See God do amazing things out there in the real world and come back and tell us all about it. We bless you in Jesus' name.